Hey, it really is an exciting day that Neil mentioned earlier for our, our Cactus Campus. And so they're, they're joining us right now for our, our time of teaching and as well as our venue across campus. And Cactus, Cactus, happy birthday. We're, we're so thrilled to celebrate one year of our Cactus Campus. And I, I can still remember the, the very second Sunday that they, we started last September and I wasn't preaching here. And so I went over there to congratulate them on such a great start. And it was such an amazing feeling because the very first Sunday, they had so many people at the Cactus Campus that we had to declare that the following Sunday, Sunday I was going there, that we were gonna have two services. And, and, and we went immediately to two services. The groundswell was so significant. And so we are really thrilled with this uh, first attempt at multi-site and how it's gone, as Rick said so well in the video, of bringing uh, the best of Scottsdale Bible and the strength of the ministry that God has given us here to other parts of the city. And so again, Cactus, way to go. We celebrate with you. Yep, amen. And so we are going to be moving on with our, our, our multi-site strategy. You know, we're rather modest about it. We're not, not very aggressive with this. We are very prayerful and, and God-led in it. I, I mean, I can remember when we started Cactus, it took us, you know, almost a year of planning and of asking God where and, and what size and, you know, what kind of resources to put behind this. And we, we very much wanted it to be spirit-led. And we have more stories throughout that whole year than we could tell you right now of just how the Lord led us during that time. And we're doing the exact same thing now with Neil, as he mentioned to you. We're, we're planning and gearing up for our, our second multi-site campus, probably sometime in 2014. And you can be praying for us and praying about your role in it as we look now for where that site would be. Should it be north? Should it be south? And all the details that fall into place. And so please be praying with us about that. And again, what, what your role should be. At the very least, I'm going to talk about this in October, your role, meaning all of you here, is that as we start additional venues, like the one we have across campus right now, as we start a multi-site, part of the reason we do that is because, again, two or three years ago, we were packed in this room. Some of you remember it. Cars were driving out because we didn't have enough space on our campus. And so by design, part of our multi-site strategy was to create more space here at the Shea campus, and look around you right now. They, I mean, we're pretty full, but there are definitely empty seats. That's your job now. Your job is to now pray about who God has in your sphere of influence that now since we've made room here, that you can invite people. You can invite people to church. You can invite maybe unchurched believers, maybe seekers that are spiritually thirsty and wouldn't mind coming hearing really good worship music, a not-so-bad sermon, and lunch with you. So that's why you invite somebody to church. And so I'm going to talk about that more in October, but really the time is now, and by design, that's how we've created things to be. Real quick word on the men's summit. We are going up in two weeks. If you are a man, men and you haven't signed up yet, I'd encourage you to do so. It's going to be an amazing uh, weekend. Tom and I are going to be talking, believe it or not, guys, we're going to be talking about love. And we're going to talk about how does a man actually love the woman in his life, the kids in his life, uh, the friends around you? What does it really mean for a man to love? Because love is the highest value in the Scriptures. It is the barometer of our sanctification, 
Love is the most important thing that God puts a premium on for us as followers of Jesus. So what does that mean for us as men? That's what we're going to talk about at, at, the, at the retreat. And, and, and I think you're going to be glad that you came. It's also an awesome weekend just to be together as men. So there's a table out back that you can still sign up for that in Cactus and Venue as well. Well, enough preamble. We're going to dive into the Word right now. I'm excited about where we're going today. So would you bow with me in Cactus and Venue as well? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our, our gathered times of worship in which we can gather as a, as a community of believers and, Lord, do so in such a way that we lift our voices to you, we celebrate what you're doing among us, and, Lord, now we turn to your word. And so I pray, God, that as we hopefully teach very rightly the things that you have revealed to us, that, God, it would penetrate our hearts and our minds and that, Lord, all of us would walk out of here in 35 minutes or so uh, ready for the week ahead. Uh, filled up with your truth and your grace in such a way that we can walk with you and have impact on others. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So here's the deal. I think that one of the single most difficult things to do in life is to share truth with those around us in such a way that they receive it and embrace it. I, I, I think that's one of the hardest things in life whether it be someone like my wife or one of my three children or a good friend or an extended family member or a coworker or even a fellow believer here in church, learning this fine art of sharing truth, and I don't mean just blabbing it and getting out there, but sharing it in such a way that it is winsome and that it stands the best chance of being heard and received, I have found to be an arduous task, to say the least, especially if we're going to add the result of it being embraced. And obviously, I'm not simply talking about gospel truth, you know, the truth of Jesus and his kingdom, though I am including this. I'm also talking about personal, everyday, relational truth. What one author distinguishes between God's truth and your truth. God's truth and your truth. God's truth is simply the truth that he has laid out in the Bible, all the stated realities of his kingdom who he is, what he is like, how he functions in this world, how to experience his salvation, what he wants from you and I. Those are all things that the Bible talks about and teaches. It's truth as God has laid it out, and it's a fine art learning how to communicate that to our kids and our coworkers and our friends and our family. But your truth is that more personal truth that has to do with your everyday, relational, even mundane life. Truth that explains you. Truth that explains why you think what you do, what you say, how you view the world around you. It, it, it's your truth on a very personal level that you don't always have a chapter and verse for, but it still needs to be communicated at times. So it's truth as you see it that has to do with your everyday activities. So an example would be, why did you make that decision that you made at work? That's your truth. How do you feel about the marriage that you're in right now? And how do you make sense of all that's happening between you and your spouse? That's your truth. What direction should your kid take right now in his or her life? What, what do you think about that? that? That's kind of your truth. You get the idea. Life is filled with all kinds of truth. Sometimes things that are clearly stated in the Bible and sometimes things that are not. But it all matters and it all needs to be communicated at key times in life. It's just that that's a very difficult task, learning to share truth in such a way that those around us will receive it. 
And if you can relate at all to this tension today, and I think that just about every one of us can, then you're ready to take a deep dive into the next section of the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. We're going to look at nine verses today. Because it's at this point in the epistle that Paul the Apostle, the author of Galatians, switches gears significantly, and he gets extremely personal very autobiographical with his fellow believers there in Galatia, and he's struggling with why they aren't receiving the truth that he has been putting before them. In fact, the key passage in this whole nine verses is verse 16 of Galatians 4, where Paul asks them the rhetorical question, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You ever felt like that? <laughs> Have I really become your enemy by just sharing with you what I think is true, either from the gospel or even from my own life? That's what Paul's wrestling with. And so let me fill you in on what's happening. Many of you might remember that Paul was the first to share the gospel with the churches in Galatia here. And so he was sharing truth with them, how salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the law or good works. And in the process of doing this, very interesting... He shares with them a lot of his life as well. He shares with them some of his physical struggles and the weight of that in his life. He shares with them much about his relational and personal and faith history, his journey up to this point in life with them. And so as he would say to the Thessalonians, another set of churches or another church that he ministered to, he said, we not only shared with you the gospel of God, but our own selves because you had become so very dear to us. And you see, I think the same would be true for the churches in Galatia, that, that Paul had been sharing with these people, kind of what we just talked about a second ago, he'd been sharing with them God's truth, as well as been sharing with them his personal truth, only now they're waffling on whether to receive any of this from him, and he's hurting over that. And he's making his personal case here in verses 12 through 20 as to why they should be receiving the truth that he is putting before them. And in so doing, Paul shares with them, and by extension, you and me, no less than five foundational realities on which truth should be shared. Five key realities that you and I should be cultivating as kind of precursors in the lives of those around us as we too would dare to share truth with them. To use an agricultural metaphor, these act as five unique kinds of spiritual fertilizer that, that will cause truth to best grow when we dare plant it in the lives of our kids or our spouse or our friends or our coworkers or our neighbors, anybody that we might be sharing truth with. And so I'm going to go through these things somewhat briefly right now, showing how each of them appears very clearly in the text here. And then I'm going to wrap up in just a few minutes with a true-to-life story that I, I think will be meaningful to you. So five things Paul gives us that the sharing of truth should be built upon for it to stand the best chance of being heard and received. And so here is the first one, and that is a shared faith in Jesus Christ. A shared faith in Jesus Christ. And so look at how Paul begins his personal plea here in verse 12 of Galatians 4. He says, brothers, I entreat you. Here it is. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
Now, it's kind of cryptic here, isn't it, when he says, become as I am, as I become as you are. So we've got to ask the question, what does he mean when he says that here? And believe it or not, in the context of Galatians, it's actually rather easy. Paul has been talking about the gospel and the Old Testament law. And his basic point to the churches in Galatia is that one experiences salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. And so earlier on in chapters 1 and 2, he talks about how even he as a Jew is not bound by the law or at least bound in such a way that he has to somehow earn God's favor, earn God's salvation by obeying it. He's saying, I'm free from the law in that sense. And he says, and so are you, Galatians. And then he shows it to them by eating with them. You're saying, well, that's kind of strange. Not back then. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles back then, especially during certain purification rites. And so Paul says, see, I'm not even going to pull away from you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to become like you are. And as you become like I am through our shared faith in Jesus Christ, seeing what he says here, we're going to show that we are one in Christ. And so when he says in verse 12, become as I am, he simply means free from the law. That you have become like I am as ones who have embraced Christ and are no longer bound by even the natural law written on your hearts. And when he says, I became like you, I, I pull close to you, even as a Jew with Gentiles, showing you our freedom in Christ. And so don't miss this, folks. In essence, he is appealing to the shared faith that they can and should have in Christ because he knows that if they can rally around a common faith in a single Savior, then this stands the best chance for truth to be heard. And to say the very least, this is not a bad starting place for you and I as well. That when we share faith with others, if we can do so with integrity, it's a good thing to appeal to a like-minded faith, to remind people that we serve the same Lord, that we're saved and forgiven by him, that we're going to spend eternity together sharing truth with each other, so we might as well practice now. It's not a bad thing to, to appeal to a shared or common faith as a precursor to sharing truth. I can remember when I first became a Christian back in March 11th, 1981, after I accepted Christ in high school, I struggled a lot with the obedience thing, as many high schoolers do. And so I was brand new to the faith, and I was clearly a believer in Christ, but I struggled a lot with peer pressure and with drinking and things like that. And, and, and I'll never forget how my campus life leader, uh, the group I was involved with, on a regular basis would take me out for a Coke after school, and, and we'd kind of debrief what I did that last weekend. And, and, and as we do so, I didn't even know what he was doing at the time. What he would say to me over and over again is, Jamie, you're a believer now in Christ. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're his. He is yours. I'm your brother in Christ. So let me share with you all the things wrong that you did over the weekend. And we kind of unpacked that. And it was funny, even as a defensive high school student, I mean, who was rebelling against his parents in a significant way, and Joe was about the same age as my parents, I didn't rebel against him. I received truth from him because of the way he postured it. One believer to another, he included me as part of the fold. It was actually a, a good way to grease the skids for truth to be heard. And I received it. Eventually, I started to change and grow. 
It's a good starting place for you and I, a shared faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with this under our belt, notice with me a second thing that Paul shares with the Galatians as to why they should receive truth from him. And this one is potent, and that is that they have a proven track record together of rich relationality that is born of brokenness. Whoa. He appeals to their rich relationality that is born of brokenness. Eventually, essentially what he's going to say to them is that we go way back. We've been through a lot together. We've even shared some of the more intimate, broken parts of our lives together. And because of that, you should hear me and listen to me when I dare tell you the truth. And so look at what he goes on to say. Look at verses 13 to 15. He couldn't be more clear. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged your eyes out your eyes and given them to me. You know, it's fascinating. Bible experts have absolutely no idea what Paul means when he says this bodily ailment. He refers to it in 2 Corinthians 12 as his thorn in the flesh, but he never goes into any more detail than that. He never tells us what it is that he was struggling with physically. So, so commentators kind of surmise. Some say that maybe it was malaria that was kind of common in the low-lying areas of Galatia. Others say that maybe it was epilepsy because he says here that they didn't despise or scorn him. And people back then would scorn epileptics because the seizures they thought were caused by a evil spirit. So maybe it was epilepsy Paul was struggling with. Others say, no, maybe it was eye problems because he says they would have gouged his eye, their eyes out and given them to him. And then in chapter 6, he's going to say, see what big letters that I write with you two. So maybe Paul had eye problems. The, the reality is we don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. But what we do know is powerful, and you're seeing it right here. And that is what we do know is that whatever it was, it was obvious to the people that Paul ministered to and with, and that they loved him despite his ailments, and they took great joy, that's what that word blessing means here, joy in his presence. They had a wonderful and rich relational history together, even one that was born of difficulty and brokenness. And don't miss that Paul is appealing to that here. He's building upon it as he pleads with them to hear the truth and receive the truth. Listen, folks, it's one of the more profound spiritual fertilizers that you and I have when sharing truth, and that is to make sure that we have a relationship with the people that we're sharing it with, and the deeper the better. Amen? I mean, Christians are so notorious at being ones who are, who are kind of verbose when it comes to truth because we feel like we found truth. And so we're willing to share it anywhere and everywhere we can. Have you ever found that about Christians? The only problem is, is that sometimes we forget that truth needs to be communicated in the realm of personal relationship. That's how Jesus communicated truth. That's how they communicated truth to each other in the New Testament church. And that's how we need to do it today. The cool thing is, you guys got relationships. Most of you have people in your spheres of influence, neighbors, friends, coworkers, extended fam families, service providers, lots of people around you. 
We got 3.8 million people in the Phoenix Metroplex. And so the reality is, is that you have a relational network, and what the Bible says is go deep in that, and as you do, this gives you the right, the relational right, to communicate God's truth and your truth. So you got shared faith in Jesus, rich relationality. Then Paul makes that statement in verse 16 of, have I really become your enemy by telling you the truth? But then he's not done with his list. He goes on to share a third thing that he hopes will cause the Galatians to receive truth. And I got to warn you, this one is both risky and gutsy at the same time, what he does here. Look up on the screen. He appeals to his pure motives. He dares to look inside and say, I got pure motives when it comes to sharing what I shared with you. So look at how he says this in verses 17 to 18. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. Now, obviously the key here is to know who the they is that he's talking about, right? Like, who's this they? And we know from the context of the book of Galatians that the they here are those in the churches of Galatia. Now, don't miss this. This will be important to see the point here. It was they in the churches in Galatia who were telling these new believers that in order to be Christians, they needed to be more works-based, based on the Old Testament law, than faith-based in Jesus Christ. They are what Bible experts call religious agitators who were in the church at that time telling people that their salvation depended on a works-based approach to the Old Testament law, that they needed to follow all the Old Testament law in order to be saved rather than just have faith in Jesus Christ. There was a battle brewing in the Sunday school classes of Galatia as they were bickering back and forth about this issue. And Paul the Apostle, who has been hearing directly from God, shows up on the scene and he says, I can solve this argument. It's through faith alone in Christ alone. And those that are saying it's by works are dead wrong. But interesting, here in these passages here, he's not concerned with the content. Notice he's concerned more with their motive. He's saying it's for no good purpose. He says they, the agitators, make much of you. They flatter you. They're trying to lift you up. They're trying to butter you up, but it's not for your own good. It's not coming from good places inside of them. So if you don't believe me, look at how the New International Version translates verse 17. Look up here on the screen. Cactus and venue, look up on your screen. This is revealing. It says, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. So there it is. Their motive is self-centered. It's selfish. All they want to do is win. You ever known people like that? They just want to win. And Paul is saying that's not coming from a good place. But then in verse 18, he says, it's good to be made much of for a good purpose, for good motives. The connotation being that Paul is this way toward them. Because he says, and not only when I am present with you. Don't miss this. He has the guts to point to his own motives and basically say to his friends in the churches there, my motives are pure. I can't say that about others around you. But when I've shared truth with you, I know that that has come from good and godly places within me. And for that reason, please listen to what I'm saying. And so the obvious point for you and I is that when we share truths with others, whether it be God's truth 
or our own personal truth, we need to check our motives and dare to ask ourselves, can you do this, how pure they are? Are we really concerned for the other person? Are we really being selfless? Are we caring more about them than ourselves? Or is there some hidden agenda as we share truth, some anger or manipulation that's a part of our true sharing? You see, people can usually tell they're not stupid. They can smell it, even if they can't pinpoint it exactly. And so it's a good thing for you and I to do a gut check when we're sharing truth with those around us. Where is this really coming from in us? To be a bit inside out in our approach to sharing truth with those around us. Paul says his was for a good purpose. His motives are pure and his heart was tender. And then more quickly, he adds a fourth component to his spiritual fertilizer. He adds that this true sharing comes from a felt, love and a felt love and passion for spiritual formation. A felt love and passion for spiritual formation. So he says there in verse 19, My little children, for who am I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Think about those words. Anguish. Childbirth. To see Christ formed in you. It's a passion for spiritual formation. That, that, that is part of his reason. It's part of the foundation for sharing truth. You, you know, my wife and I started having babies about 23 years ago. And I can remember when uh, Kim was first pregnant with Hannah. I, I, I thought it was such a, a wonderful, beautiful thing that I thought this will just got, kind of go seamlessly into my preaching and teaching ministry. And I can still remember Kim telling me very gently at one point that she doesn't think it's a good idea for a man to get up on the pulpit and talk about how difficult childbearing is, you know, because most of the men might think it's benign, but the women are going to think, who are you to talk about that? And so if you've noticed, I hardly ever use an illustration about childbirth because, quite frankly, Kim's right, I can't relate. Even though I was there for my three kids, I wasn't the one going through it. But it's interesting, I remember saying to Kim 24 years ago when I had this discussion with her, I said, yeah, but Paul the Apostle does it in Galatians chapter 4. And she'd be like, yeah, Paul the Apostle. Paul writing scripture. Paul clearly directed by God. He does that. The connotation being I'm not an apostle and I got it. I, I wasn't lost. I, I understood what she was saying. But you know, it really is a powerful, powerful thing he does here. Women, isn't it? I mean, he's saying just as, as you went through nine months of uncomfortable pregnancy and then 24 to 72 hours of painful, painful labor, but you did so because you knew on the other side was forming a beautiful, wonderful gift from God that would become your child. Paul is basically saying, I, I got the same pain right now for my friends in Galatia. And, and I'm watching Christ being formed and birthed in them. And I'm in anguish until that day comes. See, that's passion for spiritual formation. And he's appealing to that here when it comes to their lives. And then he shares one final, one simple but profound final element to sharing truth. And that is, he's, and that is being physically present. Now look at how he wraps up his words in this section. This is really profound stuff. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone because I'm perplexed by you. This is for a whole other sermon, but I got to tell you, in a world where we do so much today by Facebook, Twitter, email, and texting, nothing can ever replace, the Bible says, being physically present with another person. I think that's going to be the new wave of battle that Christians have today. I really do. 
I, I Facebook, kind of. I, I Twitter. No, I don't at all. But I, I, I do email and I text. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm semi-cool when it comes to those things. And I'm, I'm technologically savvy. But you know what? I got a real concern as we move forward as a culture that, that we don't use that to replace what God originally intended for us, and that is to be organic beings, flesh and blood, with five senses that, 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 that relate to each other as organic beings and are physically present with each other, especially when we share truth. You know, I thought about this week. Yeah, you can clap at that. <laughs> you guys, wow. That was really robust. You, you know, I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, uh, the, the Cactus Campus this week, and, it, and it's almost kind of farcical that I'm telling the Cactus Campus here that we need to be physically present with each other as I'm there by video. Are you guys with me on that? <laughs> Honestly, I started to get a little flushed in the face and thought, oops, that one's going to backfire on me, especially with the venue too. But then I thought this, and as much as we're video teaching with the Cactus and the venue, everything else, and this was by design, everything else is organic. That's the beauty of our multi-site and venues is that only the teaching is done this way. They have their own pastor, children's pastor, teen pastor. Uh, they have their own staff there. They, they, they have their own small groups, uh, uh, pastoral care, baptisms, baby dedications, all the other things that make our community of faith beautiful and touchable. It, it, it is done as a community of faith wherever we meet at Scottsdale Bible Church. And that's something we need to continue to protect here as we share truth to be physically present. So look up here on the screen and let this sink in again. A shared faith in Christ, a proven track record of relationality and brokenness, pure motives, a felt love and passion for spiritual formation, and then being physically present. Five things that stand the best chance of ensuring that truth will be heard. Five things that you and I need to cultivate in the lives of those around us if we ever want to see truth get through. Now, with this understanding, with these five things, I want to do two things on our time remaining, and one of them is going to throw you. And that is what I want to do is ask the question of you, what do we do when these things don't work? <laughs> Some of you are thinking, why would you ask that? That's a downer of a question. I mean, what do you mean, what do we do if these things don't work? I mean, you're trying to make the case that they do work, so why would you ask that question? Well, there's actually a very good reason for it. And that is that though these are five things that stand the best chance for truth to be heard, we have evidence both in the Bible as well as in our own practical lives that they're not magic. That you can be in a relationship with someone you love and you can be going through your checklist. You can say, I got a shared faith in Jesus. I got a track record of relationship. I got pure motives. I got a love for them and a passion for seeing Christ formed in them and I'm physically present. You can check them all off. You can share your truth and what happens? They don't hear you. <laughs> they don't hear you at all. I've always, I've always wondered why there's not a second Galatians. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we have 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 3 John, 2 Peter, but there's no 2 Galatians. And it was actually one of the earlier epistles ever written. So you sit there and go, what's up with that? At the very least, what we know is what we don't know. And that's that we don't know what happened after Paul shared all this with the Galatians. We know in one sense that they heard what he was saying because the churches did continue on into the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries. But in another sense, we got to assume that there were some that didn't receive this from Paul even after 
his wonderful plea because that is the way that life tends to work. There's times where we tick, tick off all the boxes and it still doesn't work. So what do we do then? Here's what I've learned over the years. It's at that point that you and I have a huge crossroad. We can either write people off and say, well, maybe I'll see you in heaven, or we can persevere and pray. We can stay in the ring with them. We can hang in there with them. When the going gets tough, the tough get praying. We cannot give up on them, but wait and pray for God, who is a God of reconciliation, a God of healing, a God who wants to move more relationally in our lives than anything else to show up and do something, some work that only he can do. And here's my promise to you. As you persevere and pray, as you wait on God and trust him, he's going to do something. At the very least in you, if not between you and the person that you're trying to get through to. Years ago, in one of my first pastorates, I developed a very, very close friendship that has survived, as you'll see in a second here, somewhat over the years. It's rare for a pastor to get really close to people because we tend to be a defensive lot. We get a lot of stones throw at, thrown at us. And so to, to really trust somebody else, I'll confess to you, is very, very hard, especially that they will stay with you in the long run. As I've joked with you guys before, some of you want more than anything to have a lunch with me, and I keep telling you it's an anticlimactic experience. I will be sure to disappoint you. Uh, I'm not what you think I am. But over the years, I have developed some very, very close friends, just a few of them, that I hold dear, and one of them was with my friend and one of my first pastorates. We climbed the hill together. He was an elder, and we climbed the hill, and, and seeing change come in our church, our, our wives became good friends. Our kids started to connect. And so when I left the church, it was very hard for me to leave him particularly because we had shared a lot of our relational history together. We had shared our brokenness and wept over things together. I mean, it was really an amazing friendship. When I left the church, we stayed in touch over the years, and we've vacationed together as families and, and really done a great job of staying in touch. And about three or four years ago, they called and said that they were going to come to Scottsdale to visit us. It was during spring training, so I think they had ulterior motives as well, but I'll take it. And so they are coming to Scottsdale, and they said they were bringing their daughter, whom we just cherish and love as well. And you've had this happen to you, I mean, for months Probably every other night, Kim and I would come home from work and we'd just say, I can't wait until they get here. I mean, we were just talking about it. And I still remember the terminal. It was Terminal 3. And I'm not a balloon guy, so we didn't have any balloons. But we were there. And when they got off the plane, we hugged them and we welcomed them. And for the first two days, we had a blast. We took them up to Sedona. We showed them the church. We showed them our home. I mean, it was just an amazing time of reconnecting. And on about the second day, we were at my home having dinner, and it was with one of my daughters and then their daughters, about the six of us. And, and during dinner, I was doing my casual pastoral talk, and so I asked their daughter, who was now grown, uh, are you seeing anybody special in your life right now? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, as I probably always ask, and this is just the risk you run eating at my home, I said, is he a Christian? Yeah, it was like that. It was like a pause right after that. <laughs> And she looked at me and she said something to the nature, I can't remember exactly what it was, but she said something to the nature, well, I'm not sure he is by your definition. 
And my very first thought was, well, last I looked, there's only one definition of, of that, but I'll roll with it. And, and, and I did something that I do quite often, especially in my own home, especially with people that I, I love, and that is that I went on probably about a four-minute patriarchal diatribe <laughs> on the value of marrying a Christian. I mean, my poor girls have heard it over and over again. They could mimic me as I was doing it. And I told her I'd heard stories of people who, I mean, I see all the time people marry non-Christians and, oh, it's a train wreck and it creates more problems than you think and that missionary dating is not a good tactic and all these things. And after about four minutes, I just sort of shut up and I thought, well, I, I got it through and that's a good thing. I was sitting on the porch a few minutes later with my friend and the girls were inside and um, and my wife's always said I'm kind of dense when it comes to relational discernment, but sometimes it's just obvious. And as I was looking through the window, I could see my friend's wife, and she was mad. Her arms were kind of waving a little bit. She was pacing a little bit. And then she looked out at the window at me with this, basically said this, look, it was, I wish you'd die. And so I thought, <laughs> she's mad. And so I looked at my friend, and I said, she's mad at me, isn't he? And he kind of smiled and said, yeah, you noticed, huh? And, and I said, what's up with that? I said, I didn't share anything wrong. I mean, what I shared was right. And, and, and again, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I shared faith, a proven track record of rich relationality, <laughs> pure motives. I, I want to see Christ formed in her. We're physically present. It's my house. I mean, you know. And he kind of smiled, he knows me very well, and he said, well, you know, your timing was just a little off, and it's a sensitive issue right now, and you know, it just, it, it's a touchy issue. And so, you know, she's protective of our daughter right now, and so probably wasn't the best thing for you to share. Oh, okay, well, I, I messed up, I do that quite often, and yet I was right. <laughs> so, you know, okay. Some of you are going, some of you are going right now, I do not want to have lunch with you, all right? I, I do not. So here's where it gets rough, though, is that for uh, basically the next two or three days as they were here, they, they just didn't, they ignored us. They, they didn't return my calls. They went to their baseball game. They just sort of said, we're done with the Rasmussen's. And that was really hurtful. That really threw us. And they came to church, Scottsdale Bible, that Sunday, and when they were leaving to say goodbye right after church, the wife was crying. And um, I didn't know why. And she hugged me and basically just said goodbye, and they left. And for the next two years, we heard nothing from them. For two whole years. Now, some of you are saying, well, why didn't you call them? I, I don't know. I was confused. I was hurt. I was angry. I thought to myself, all I did was share some loving things with your kid, and you know what, I do that all the time, and it might have been bad timing, I'll grant you that, but it's not like I'm the antichrist. I mean, I, I love you, I'm your friend. And, and, and for two years, we didn't talk. And probably once a month, my wife and I would, at the dinner table, just grieve that and talk about that and just think, what happened? How can four minutes derail such a rich friendship, people we thought we'd journey with, I mean, till the Lord came back or till we went to be with him. There are times during it as well that I would get very angry. Can you guys relate to that? There are times where I just think, this is just wrong. It's unfair. And I'd come home and I'd say to Kim, you know what? If that's the way they want to be, then fine. I got other people that want to be my friend, a few of them, and I can get other friends. And it's not like I'm looking for friends anyways, you know, and I'd be the one pacing in my kitchen. And my wife is such a godly woman. I mean, she'd say to me, yeah, that's the hurt talking. 
That's the anger talking. Get through your pout period because you don't mean any of that. You love them and they love you and you want this to be reconciled. And I did. And I did. So during that time, one could argue I was persevering and praying. I really would. I would take it to the Lord because I was angry too and I was hurt too because I don't like being abandoned and I don't like it when friends don't stay in the ring with me during difficult times, whether I was being a bit overboard or not. That was hurtful to me. About 18 months ago, 12 to 18 months ago, I got an email from one of their relatives telling me that she, the mom, had a cancer and that it was bad. It was a metastasized form of cancer that had gone to her liver and her lungs, and it, outside of a miracle, wasn't going to end with her living. So I immediately got on the phone and the email, and I called them. I thought, enough is enough. This is craziness. And you know, we never talked about the issue at all. We just spent the next few months navigating the waters of her illness and her treatment. And I had some of the most wonderful, rich conversations with them on the phone. The last time I talked to her, which was last spring, she was, and she was such an incredible woman of faith. And, and you know, here she is in her late 50s. I mean, really very young by today's standards. And she just said, you know, if this is the time God has for me, I'm ready to go be with him. He's been my savior ever since I was a little girl. I love him. I trust him. And, uh, and, and I'm ready if this is my time. And it was an amazing thing to watch her go through this. Kim and I had planned a trip out there in April to go see them over Kim's, Kim's a teacher over spring break. And uh, they just said it wasn't a good time. It just wasn't right because of the treatment and she just wasn't up to it. So we had planned a visit in, in June and July when we were going to be away. In May, I was in Great Britain passing through on my way to Poland for our mission trip. And I got an email from my friend saying that his wife had passed away, gone to be with the Lord sooner than they had even expected. I immediately called him from the hotel that I was at in London, and I was on the verge of tears. I just said, man, I'm just so sorry. And uh, she is with the Lord, and we were celebrating that, and I just said, man, I love you. And he said, I love you too. And I said, you know, Kim wants to fly. She wants to just leave everything right now and fly to, to be with you for the funeral. And he said, no, no, don't ever do that. She's got school and other things, and just, you know, he said, let's connect this summer. Let, let, let us continue to be in touch, and we'll connect this summer. In July, I was in Cleveland, as many of you know, home there just recuperating. And, and at one point, Kim was going to go away for a couple days to see some friends in Detroit. So I called my buddy and I said, hey, could you see to it to, to maybe drive the three, four hours and, and come be with me for a couple days in Chagrin? I'd love to reconnect with you. And he did. And we had the most marvelous two days of reunion, of relationship building that I was just so thankful for. Remember I told you guys that, that I tried this diet for 30 days, you know, that I had done years ago to lose weight? Well, I did, but for those two days, man, I abandoned it. I mean, we went out to every, there were only three, but every great restaurant in Chagrin Falls, and we just ate, and we talked, and then we hike, and then we pray, and it was such a rich time. And on the second day, we were out uh, on the porch, and he was going to leave the next morning, and I uh, you guys know me, I just, I can't leave anything unsaid. So I said, hey, I want to talk to you about what happened three years ago. <laughs> and he looks at me and he's such a private, distinguished fellow. And he says, oh no. <laughs> Basically, do you really want to go there? And I said, you know, I don't want to talk about what happened. I said, because I don't know if we're ever going to see eye to eye on that. I said, I'm not going to admit I was wrong. I said, I don't think I was. I said, maybe the way I shared it was wrong, but I said, look, I'm going to share with you a list. Shared faith in Jesus. Uh, proven, you know, I didn't do that. But I, I'd gone through my list, and I go, I love you guys. I love your daughter like she's my own. And I said, I, I meant it with everything good. And, and I said, but here's the deal. 
I said, when the train came off the tracks, I said, what hurt me the most is the fact that you just disappeared on me. And I said, I got enough people that do that in my life. They hear me preach a sermon and they leave. They, they don't like a move that we've done, like a capital campaign, and they leave. I said, I get enough of that. I don't need that from my closest friends. I said, so all I would ask is that not if, but when I do that again in the future, because I'm good for it, like weekly, saying things like that. I said, all I would ask is that you stay in the ring with me and that we just make a deal today that uh, we're not going to allow something like that to ever get in the way again. And it was such a tender moment. He looked at me and he said, deal. He said, it won't ever happen again. It was an amazing moment in time. I reminded him at that point that Scottsdale is a destination city and that the one that he lives in is not. And so that he owes me the next visit. And when we talked this week, I asked him if I could share our story. He said, yes. He gave me permission to share this. He's going to visit me here in the, in the new year. And again, I'm looking so forward to it. I'll be there at Terminal 3 waiting for him when he gets off the plane. My guess is some of you have very similar stories, and you might even be in the thick of it right now. You're in a relationship with someone you love. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's a family member, a good friend, a coworker, maybe somebody here at church. And you're in the process of sharing some truth with them. Here's the first thing I would ask you to do. Make sure these five things are happening before you do that, <laughs> as best you can. Make sure of your, if they are Christian, of your shared faith. Make sure of some rich relational history. That will only help. Make sure of pure motives. Make sure of your passion to see Christ formed in them. And make, make sure that you're physically present. No, no email stuff. Just, just be with them as you share this with them. And then if and when that doesn't work, persevere and pray. Because I've learned through some of the school of hard knocks that when we persevere and pray, when we hang in there with somebody, God tends to honor that. And however he'll do it, he's going to do something in and through us. Hang in there. Because the relationships that you're in, those that you love, are worth persevering for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Um, the word that you teach us here on how to develop the kind of relationality with those around us that is rich and is meaningful, that is Christ-centered, that is honest, that is authentic, and that, Lord, even is worth fighting for and staying in the ring for. And, Father, I thank you for the experience that I had with my friend and for the love and faith that we share. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here today and even at Cactus and Venue that as we give an analysis, an audit to our own relationships, that, Lord, if there are people in our lives that are fitting into this value of truth sharing and even maybe not receiving it, that, God, you would give us wisdom. Give us humble hearts that are willing to own our own stuff and yet, Lord, to affirm love and to hang in there with them even through it all. So, Lord, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've demonstrated this for us in Christ and that you've shown us what redemption and reconciliation look like in our salvation with you through Jesus. May that be our model for how we treat others, I pray. In Jesus' holy and precious name, and we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.